Today we're going to have some fun. We're going to talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit. No disagreement. No issues with that, right? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, an important question is, why does it matter? Well, I would say the meaning matters because I think it sets our expectations about the Christian life, about how the Holy Spirit interacts with us. And that is a very important thing. Now, let me just tell you, I don't claim exhaustive knowledge on this. I don't claim I have it all down. I try to preach with clarity. I try to preach accurately. I've immersed myself in both sides of Pentecostal theology, non-Pentecostal theology, and uh, I have problems with each. Because <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think there are extremes. I think there are extremes on both sides. But this is, this is a place that I hope that we can all get to. I believe that brothers and sisters in Christ who take a different view than me on this, that they want to be used by God, that they want to operate in the supernatural power of God, just like I do, right? Well, we don't have the corner on the market on that. There, there are people who emphasize, you know, baptism, filling, or tongues. Listen, we can learn from them if you're not in that stream. I think it's important that we not prejudge and assume that there's some nefarious motive just because someone's experience and understanding is different than our own. Now, we cannot sit and cast aspersions upon our brothers and sisters in Christ who are seeking God and maybe in a more Pentecostal stream. But I'm equally attentive to those who kind of look in a direction and say, you know what? Uh, these people are not filled with the Spirit because they don't display some manifestation like tongues or something else. I am wary of the pride and the arrogance that divides the body of Christ on this issue. I'm wary of people thinking they have the inside track and others don't regarding this issue. Let us not be a part of that problem. I think we need to approach this understanding we've got something to learn from people in all streams of the Christian experience, and we can celebrate what they discover and not codify our own experience that that's got to be the same experience for everybody else. I just want to approach this with, with great humility, and I hope I can accomplish that. Let's all stand as we look at Acts 8. Now, this is a part of a greater story in which a gentleman named Simon enters into the picture right after this, and he tries to buy off basically the apostles to get in the action of the Holy Spirit, and he's condemned for it. We're not going to get into Simon today, but just, just this section. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, as we gather together and we look at this topic, may our hearts be humble. May we rejoice with our brothers and sisters who 
embrace the gospel and maybe have different experiences than us, and may we, may we learn from them. But I also pray for clarity and accuracy on our part, and not pridefully, not arrogantly, but that we seek to honor your word, seek to follow your word, and let it dictate our experience. And so we approach you with uh, just a, a great sense of awe, a great sense of appreciation for your word, for this historical account, account in Acts. Teach us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the apostles hear that people in Samaria have responded positively to the gospel. They have believed the word of God. Now, why was it necessary for Peter and John to go to Samaria? I think to answer that question, we need to remind ourselves of what the relationship was like between Samaritans and the Jews. And that new Jewish Christians would probably have much of the same prejudice that all the Jews had towards the Samaritans. To state it succinctly, these Jewish believers would have had the propensity to be narrow in their view of God's grace. See, they believed that the epicenter of spiritual activity was Jerusalem, that God was going to operate through his people in Jerusalem. And so they had a hard time understanding that God was moving outside of that stream. I mean, Jerusalem is where the church started, right? And so everything had to come through Jerusalem. But God begins to open up their eyes. He brings in a variety of people from surrounding areas outside of Jerusalem, and, and thousands come to Christ. And then the persecution started. And some of these converts that were in Jerusalem are now spread out uh, beyond the city. And so Philip goes to Samaria. And as a result, we find out that many people have come to Christ, many Samaritans. They believe the gospel, they believe the word of God. But that's a problem. It's a problem because the Samaritans were despised. See, Jews went out of their way to travel around Samaria instead of going through Samaria when they would be on a trip. The, the Jewish Talmud said this, Samaritans are the foolish people which my heart abhors. May I never set eyes on a Samaritan. Their bread is as unclean as swine's flesh. Proselytes are not to be received from them. They have no part in the resurrection from the dead. It seems obvious that Jewish believers would have had suspicion about Samaritan converts. In fact, I find it quite interesting that John is one of the apostles that goes to visit Samaria in Acts 8. Because some years before that, in Luke 9... John has a different attitude. Uh, you might remember the story that there were some Samaritans in Luke 9 that rejected Christ. John has this reaction toward them. Listen to this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent out messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. 
But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem, meaning that he was set to be a suffering Messiah, not one that was going to reign at that point. And when his disciples, James and John, saw the rejection from the Samaritans, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Let's just incinerate the Samaritans. We'll be done with the problem. That would solve a lot of issues for us. Peter, the designated leader of the apostles, and John, knowing where they've come from, it would be very unlikely that they would be bamboozled about fake converts. I mean, their observations and approval of the Samaritans, imagine the weight that that would carry with the apostles and the Jerusalem believers, knowing where they came from. And imagine what it meant for John in terms of just transforming his own perspective as he he walks in this and sees what God is doing in Samaria. Now, the purpose of their visit is actually stated in, in verse 15. They came to pray for them, the Samaritans, to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the Samaritans had, had received water baptism, but they needed something more. God was about to convey to them in a very dramatic fashion that the Samaritans and other believers outside of Jerusalem would be considered equals. They would be in the in crowd. They were a part of the body of Christ. They too would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we might say that this would be their own Samaritan Pentecost. Now, b- before this, before Peter and John lay hands on them, we have no record of the Samaritans speaking in tongues here. We have no record of the Samaritans praying to receive the Holy Spirit. It was the church in Jerusalem and Peter and John that were praying for them. And with the the tremendous hatred and prejudice that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans, God demonstrated in a rather dramatic fashion that they're going to be united now as a church. And I believe, if we want to put a title to this, that what is taking place with the Samaritans, even though this particular verbiage is not used, it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Nearly 100 times we see the words baptize, baptism, or baptized used in the New Testament. There are eight passages that speak of baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not throwing in there passages that speak of filling because I believe that that, those deserve to be treated separately. I'm also not including passages like Acts 8 where it might be inferred because that could be open to interpretation. Passages that speak directly, specifically of baptism of the Holy Spirit are Matthew 3.11, Mark 1.18, Luke 3.16, John 1.33, Acts 1.5, 10.47, and 1 Corinthians 12.13. Now, you look through every one of these passages, this is what we notice. 
Not one time are people asking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not one passage are we commanded to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. We're not instructed to ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. A reasonable conclusion could be, by looking at those verses, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a sovereign work of God upon believers. In fact, what you see in the context is God's inclusion into his family because of the gospel, him widening that swath of of inclusion of Gentiles and Samaritans. We could say it this way, that God baptizes people with the Holy Spirit as a way of identifying or expressing the unity in the body of Christ, and that is exactly what 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says. In the same way, all of us, whether Jews or Gentiles, it's hard to appreciate what he's saying. Jews or Gentiles. I mean, it it, it would be like maybe for us to say um, uh, Christians and those who grew up Islam. Right? But now they believe the gospel. Whether slaves or free have been baptized into one body by the same spirit. And we've all been given the one spirit to drink. I mean, listen, in Acts 1 and 2, where the Pentecost, right? It was in the context of a diversity of people from the outlying regions, Hellenistic, Greek-speaking Jews, right? And, 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 and Jews that grew up in Jerusalem, coming to Jerusalem and believing the gospel. That was a big deal. In the gospel, such as in John 131, it's John the Baptist testifying that he was baptizing with water and that he, Christ, might be revealed to Jerusalem. But later in verse 33, he speaks of Christ who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The idea is that I was limited to this baptism and Israel and geography. Jesus is not going to be limited to that because he's going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. They're going to, they're going to be indwelled with the Holy Spirit and all people are going to be able to come. Our passage says Peter and John laid hands on the Samaritans. They did this because the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on the Samaritans yet. Now, you know, I look at this passage, I say, okay, now the Holy Spirit is invisible, so how did they know that the Spirit was not indwelling them? How would they know that? I can only assume up to this point, before the apostles laid hands on them, that there was no outward manifestation like at Pentecost. In Jerusalem, no tongues, no fire, no wind, no external manifestation. So the laying on of hands uh, that, that gave the Holy Spirit to these Samaritans, it was like giving approval from the apostles to the Samaritans. And I think some physical acts have great meaning and significance. It's kind of like, you know, when we've done the unity thing in, in Springfield and black leaders from, from this city, washing the feet of a, of a white police chief or other policeman. I mean, the significance of that goes beyond words of what that physical act means. And in the same way, for these apostles, laying hands on the Samaritans, telling them, you are a part of us. 
we commend you, we commission you, we are telling you the Holy Spirit is going to come now and indwell you and make you a part of the church. That is significant beyond words. They had received the Holy Spirit. Now many take notice that these people were obvious believers before Peter and John got there, but then afterward they received the Holy Spirit. And so uh, they create what's called a doctrine of subsequence. For instance, uh, if you grew up from a Catholic tradition, you might know that there was a confirmation that takes place after a baptism. Uh, If you're a Pentecostal, you might believe that you come to Christ, but there's then going to be a baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are these special works after salvation. Now, I'll just say as an aside to this that I think for all of us, uh, no matter what your background, there usually comes along in our Christian life a, a time in which we you know, really get serious with God, we go all out, we, we commit our total selves to that. And in, in similar fashion, whether you're Pentecostal, non-Pentecostal, there is this giving up of all that we have as unto the Lord, and people can call that different things. So in that sense, I think there is a similarity that, that we're wanting all of God in our life. But there are certainly others that, that see this as kind of a proof text for this subsequent theology. In other words, that this is to be normative for all Christians. However, if you go through the book of Acts, you see that there's really nothing normative like laying on of hands when people receive the Spirit or, or tongues. There's a lot of different things that take place and not all of them take place in every instance. There's no pattern. It tells us that perhaps God is sovereign in these things, that, that, that we can't control the, the movement of the Spirit. In fact, it was really what Simon was trying to do. We read about this later. He's trying to you know, get his grubby hands on it and control it and, and box it in, and, you know, and he's basically condemned for that. But our passage here tells us that they received the Holy Spirit. So normally the Spirit of God is given its salvation, but here in Acts 8, there's a gap. Now, is this to be a, a pattern? I would say this, that if it's meant to be a pattern, then we would expect this same pattern to be repeated throughout Acts. We would expect probably in the epistles for this pattern to have instruction for us about this that we're to follow. You would expect robust instruction and evidence if this was intended to be a pattern for all believers. Now, if it was not intended to be a pattern, then what does it mean? Well, I think I've already kind of let the cat out of the bag as far as what, what I think. And by the way, you can take it different. That's fine. We're all part of the family of God if you believe the gospel. So, you know, no skin off my back. We can still fellowship. Not that big of a deal, right? But the best explanation is, I think, that, that God withheld the, his spirit from the Samaritans until Peter and John could come in order that the Samaritans might be seen and confirmed to be fully incorporated into the community of Jerusalem Christians who'd already experienced this this Pentecost in Acts 2. 
I mean, they had their Holy Spirit event. And now it's going to occur with the Samaritans. I mean, it was not only for the benefit of the Samaritans, it was for the benefit of the Jerusalem church. They are a part of us. And just imagine what it meant even to John, that we fully accept them as part of the body. And by the way, this was not the last time we see a gap between a conversion experience and the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 11, 15 through 18, Peter understood the the giving of the Holy Spirit to Cornelius and his people as God's sign that the Gentiles were to be accepted as full members of the Christian community. Listen to what it says. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They're pulling in that gospel passage, right? That initial promise. If, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in the way? I can't be prejudiced or biased about this. When they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the Samaritans, upon uh, the, the, the Gentiles, is proof of their equality with the Jerusalem believers. Proof, we might add, even to the Jerusalem believers and to the apostles. Hey, the Samaritans, they're a part of us. Now, we don't see this as an instruction that we're to follow in the epistles. We see this as it seems to be a kind of unique experience for a unique purpose. I would say this, that in addition to the baptism, we are commanded repeatedly to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. I shouldn't say in addition to, I should say that with baptism, we're not always, we're not commanded, it's something different, but with the filling, we're commanded to be filled. For instance, Ephesians 5.18 says, we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, not drunk with wine. The idea is that we're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, just like Wine would control a person, particularly if they have too much of it. We would say it this way, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit means that I belong to his body. The fullness of the Spirit means that my body belongs to him. The baptism is final. The fullness is repeated as we trust God for his power in our life. Uh, We're told that when the Holy Spirit is in control of us, what that's going to look like. There's particular fruit, love, joy, peace. Remember those in Galatians 5, 22 through 24. Specific characteristics, character traits that will be born out in our life when the Holy Spirit is controlling us. By the way, the word filled is used 14 times in the book of Acts. Six times it is used for the filling of the Holy Spirit. What is interesting is the setting that takes place when people are filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2.4, a crowd gathers, and it's a Jewish audience in need of Christ, and the disciples speak in tongues 
and then Paul preaches. In Acts 4.8, Peter is filled and speaks before public officials and rulers. In Acts 4.31, a prayer meeting ensued and the disciples are filled with the Spirit and it says they continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. In Acts 9.17, Ananias lays hands on Saul to heal him and then shortly after, he preaches with boldness in the synagogue. In Acts 13, 9, Paul is filled with the Spirit, and it says he confronted a magician who was opposing the Word of God. And in Acts 13, 52, the disciples were filled with the Spirit, and in response to being persecuted, they are filled with joy, and they leave Antioch without having any you know, spirit of vengeance. Now, the overwhelming evidence from Acts demonstrates that being filled with the Spirit is to empower others for service, be it the Word of God, endurance in a trial, or any other way that God chooses to equip us in that moment. Now, other than the fruit of the Spirit that we noted, there doesn't seem to be any pattern here. There's not one thing that always is displayed as being filled with the Spirit, other than God providing what people needed in the moment. Let me add that filling is not automatic. We are responsible to live in dependence upon the power of God each moment of our lives. That means humbly seeking Him, humbly acknowledging our need. There's no like, you know, secret formula you know, abracadabra, certain words to say. By the way, filled and filling, it's used 59 times throughout the New Testament, just a, a wider view of it. And do you know the Scripture also instructs us to be filled with Christ and God? This is interesting. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's Ephesians 3.19. Uh, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority, Colossians 2.10. Uh, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of the praise of God, Philippians 1.11. Well, let me ask you this. Are we to develop you know, separate doctrines or practices for each person of the Trinity controlling us or filling us? Or can we understand that the Godhead is working in concert to help us live the Christian life, to be our power. By implication, could we say that each person of the Trinity plays a part and is to be depended on to live the Christian life? And the various results of the filling from all of these passages include things like awe, awe, that means A-W-E, okay? Um, tongues, speaking the word with boldness, healing, joy, goodness, knowledge, comfort, Love, righteousness, wisdom, understanding, prophesying. Again, all of these as a result of being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Not one particular manifestation. The Holy Spirit controlling us and then out from that comes these characteristics. I think Ephesians 5, 18 through 20 and Colossians 3, 16 shed light on this. Uh, in Ephesians, it says this, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always 
for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then listen to Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I mean, the similarity here can't be just a coincidence, right? Filling of the Spirit, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly are producing the same results. Why is that? Because it is the word of God in us controlling us through the power of God, and that is synonymous with being filled with the Holy Spirit. Could the idea be that when the Word of God controls us, our behavior, our thinking, it's the same as being filled with the Spirit of God? Absolutely. Now, some will contend, well, listen, we need to pray in the Spirit. We need to worship in the Spirit. And I would say, Absolutely, we need to do that. In fact, I think we need to do everything in the Spirit. But usually when people say that, they're saying, well, it's to be manifested with tongues. Now, certainly tongues could be a part of that. But I think we need to have a little wider view of this. Doing something in the Spirit, by the way, is talked about 20 times in the New Testament, over 20 times in the New Testament. Listen to some of these examples. Matthew twenty two forty three. David is said to have called out to the Lord in the Spirit. Uh, Luke 1, 17, John the Baptist would minister in the Spirit. Luke twenty two twenty seven. Simeon was brought into the temple to see Jesus uh, in the Spirit. Acts nineteen twenty one. Paul resolves to go to different cities and minister in the Spirit. Romans 8, 9, Christians who have the indwelling Spirit don't walk by the flesh, but they're to walk in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, people recognize the Lordship of Christ in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14, 2, people who speak with tongues speak mysteries in the Spirit. Ephesians 6, 18, we're to pray in the Spirit. Philippians 2, 1, we're encouraged to express unity because of the fellowship or participation in the Spirit. And in Colossians 1.8, Epaphras made known to Paul how the Colossians loved in the Spirit. And then various times throughout the book of Revelation, we see that there were visions in the Spirit. What do we see in terms of one exclusive trait? We don't. There's not one particular thing that always happens as a result of being in the Spirit other than the driving force of the action is being done through the Spirit. Could not the same be said for praying and worshiping in the Spirit? In other words, praying in the Spirit may at times for some include tongues if they have that gift, but tongues is is certainly not the exclusive trait or even a necessary characteristic. There are numerous places where being in the Spirit has nothing to do with tongues. Now, I would say this, that the Spirit is indispensable in any and all tasks, and we are to operate in the will and power, supernatural power of God. And so we're all to be filled with the Spirit to seek the filling of the Spirit to allow Him to control our life so that we can do the will of God and the power of God. That is the premier characteristic of being in the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit. So listen, whether it's looking at baptism, filling, or in the Spirit, there is a a wider meaning here, I think, that points to discipleship and being 
controlled by God. We celebrate Acts 8 because we see the sovereign work of God putting the body of Christ together, going out of his way to supernaturally letting the Samaritans know, letting the apostles know, letting the Jerusalem Christians know that you know they're not out and you're in. They believe the gospel and therefore everybody's in. It's a, uh, the baptism of the Spirit is a message of inclusion and unity. Now, to me, there is a very odd quirk about all of this, that the very ministry of the Holy Spirit was intended to convey inclusion and unity, and yet it is being lobbied about in many circles to convey exclusion. You don't have this gift. You don't do that. You're not in. What should be normative for us is that we operate in a fashion that is inclusive to all who come to faith in Christ. Then they are baptized in the Holy Spirit and we are to embrace them. What should be normative to us is that God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son are to empower us and they're to be depended on for life. What is normative, what should be normative for us is that we seek and operate in the supernatural power of God that will be demonstrated in a variety of ways and not just through one particular gift. We are, as believers in Jesus Christ, all baptized in the Spirit. We all have the Spirit. We are all part of the body of Christ. And we are subsequently to be filled or controlled by the Spirit in all aspects of our life. The best that we can do is look to the Word of God and have it control our thinking and our experience. Our experience is to align with the Word of God. Or let the Word of God reign supreme in how we think about these things. That is my desire for all of us. Let's pray.